Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheck. A popular desire for authoritarian rule in the face of a changing and sometimes shaky economy. An overheated sense of nationalism to cover up uncertainty about the future. Scapegoating and military adventurism as a salve for a lack of purpose and policy. A dislike of outsiders and a desire to crack down on journalists to cover up anger about the changing nature of employment. Sounds like a certain candidate for president of the United States. In fact, it's a picture of the rise of Vladimir Putin in Russia, as Russia still comes to grips with the change heralded by the Soviet collapse. But to fully understand Putin in Russia, it's important to look beyond Moscow, just as it's necessary to look past Manhattan or San Francisco to try and understand America. My guest, longtime foreign correspondent Ann Gerrels, has explored the Russia that's far from Moscow in what some might call the Russian heartland. Her 20-plus years of reporting from a town on the southern edge of the Ural Mountains reveals a Russia that today embraces a unique combination of Western goods, inherent corruption, and authoritarian rule. Ann Gerrels is a former correspondent for NPR and the author of the previous book, Naked in Baghdad, She was awarded the Courage of Journalism Award by the International Women's Media Foundation and the George Polk Award for Radio Reporting. It is my pleasure to welcome Ann Garrels to the program to talk about Putin country, a journey into the real Russia. Ann, thanks so much for joining us. Well, I'm delighted to talk to you. It's great to have you here. When did you first begin to explore this town, this town of Chelyabinsk? I started in 93. It was clear to me that uh, Moscow was not Russia, and uh, I had been traveling around the country, but I wanted to choose one place that I would follow over time. I frankly didn't realize that I would be doing it for 20-plus years and write a book about it, but at the time, I, I wanted somewhere where I could meet people, follow them, uh, and and see what their reaction was to the dramatic changes that were going on under Boris Yeltsin. And this was a town that was kind of a, a heartland town, a kind of industrial town, a kind of center of the Russian military-industrial complex. You got it. Uh, and, and in many ways representative of of uh, the whole series of cities across Russia, which, I mean, Moscow is the biggest by far and, uh, you know, controls not just the financial, but the entertainment. It's the government, you know, center. It's it's basically the center of everything. And then after that, you have much smaller cities across Russia, many of them sort of like Chelyabinsk, sort of grim industrial cities where the factories are right in the middle of the city, um, pollution is extreme, uh, and uh, with Chelyabinsk and the region, you had the added uh, military-industrial component because it was beyond Hitler's air force in World War II, so uh, all the plants, the military-industrial plants, the tank production was all moved out there. It's amazing back then how isolated this place was, even though it was this kind of industrial heartland, as we might think of it, in terms of an American comparison, it was profoundly isolated. It was closed to foreigners until 93, basically. Uh, So I had not been able to get out there until then. Uh, And there are uh, 
It is also the home to the Soviet nuclear weapons program. Uh, It was a secret program to start with. Uh, Stalin was desperate to catch up to the United States, and he uh, put it, you know, far from what he thought were peering eyes in the forests of the region of Chelyabinsk. And and there are a couple of cities which are basically the equivalent of Hanford in Washington or Oak Ridge, Tennessee, Los Alamos. and they are still not only closed to foreigners, but closed to Russians who do not live there or have special passes to get in. And these are cities of about 100,000 people each. And talk a little bit about how this town began to change after the collapse of the Soviet Union, your return trips there, what you began to witness. Well, initially, um, people were at once sort of fearful of all the changes, hopeful that, you know, prosperity would come with the, with openness and privatization, capitalism, whatever. Uh, They were enchanted with the West. Uh, I mean, foreign missionaries, American missionaries would, were coming in to win the, the, the hearts uh, of what they felt were benighted Russians. And people would turn up and drop by the hundreds to, to listen to, you know, uh, all groups, whether it was Pentecostalists or Seventh-day Adventists or Baptists or whatever. Um, but over time, uh, Yeltsin and his Western advisors and the whole glimmer of democracy and so-called openness began to be associated with corruption, with uh, poverty. Uh, people were, the factories were which had not, you know, would, uh, did not work in the new world. Were they didn't necessarily fire the the workers, but they just simply didn't pay them. Uh, so people were pretty desperate when I in the nineties. One of the other things that's amazing about this place is how it wasn't as it began to change as all these things started to happen. The attitudes of the people were not monolithic. That, that it was very culturally different among different groups and lots of subcultures that started to emerge. Well, yes, and full of contradictions, too. First of all, there's quite a large Muslim, uh, indigenous Muslim population made up of Bashkirs and Tatars who were, um, you know, who were there long before the Russians uh, moved across Chelyabinsk in the uh, 17th and 18th centuries. But it, it is a, um, and people have very contradictory views about themselves, what it means to be Russian, uh, because that was a big thing, too, in addition to this terrible sort of economic collapse that they suffered again and again in the 90s. Uh, they, there was also the question of who are we? There was an identity crisis. What is Russia? I mean, after all, you know, it, Russia had been part of the Soviet Union since 1917. It hadn't been Russia alone since before then. And all of a sudden, it was sort of like, who are we? And what can we be proud of? Uh, what, what can we draw on in our past? So you have these big fights about was Stalin good or bad, uh, with Putin basically saying, you know, he saved the nation in World War II. Now, some may dispute that. Uh, but uh, and historians now are sort of being forced to the friends of mine who are historians at university being forced to find, you know, 
sort of the good in the past, even though they say this is often a perversion of history. Talk about this deep-seated sense of insecurity and, and this, uh, this issue that you're touching on now about not really having a Russian idea, a Russian identity, and, and what that created. Well, it, it's created, you know, a real search and and it's also, I mean, and a reevaluation of history and what can they be proud of in the past and and then what can they where what is their place in the world? And to some degree, Putin has very successfully played on the feeling that the West has basically treated the new Russia as a third world country, has dismissed its concerns and that the West plays by its own rules, and then when Russia tries to exert its own national interests, is is sort of told, I'm sorry, but you can't do that. And there's also the issue of NATO moving up to Russia's borders. This is a Cold War construct. And Russians, you know, were sort of going, hey, wait just a minute. And the issue, I mean, you see this most uh, uh, clearly in Ukraine, there was also a sense of Putin using this as kind of traditional scapegoating, that in many ways he built his power base on that kind of scapegoating about the West. Well, yes, but it was a, but it was a very real, um, I mean, in some ways we gave him uh, plenty of reasons to sort of point the finger at us. Hmm. I mean, we are not entirely blameless in all of this. Uh, although he has taken it <laughs> to to a considerable extreme, uh, and there are, I mean, I think there are wise Americans who are sort of coming out. Whether it's William Perry, uh, a former defense official, and, I mean, lots of people sort of saying, "Hey, wait a minute, you know, we need to we need to find a way to deal with Russia." Now, it's clear that what Putin is doing domestically in many ways is extremely unsavory, to put it mildly. Um, he is uh, using uh, the law enforcement to crack down on the opposition. He is shrinking the political space daily uh, and using intimidation, if not outright threats. Talk a little bit about the influx of Western goods and the impact that that started to have. Well, it was dramatic. I mean, initially when I got to Chelyabinsk in 93, I mean, there was, there was nothing. I mean, literally you had to queue up for food. Um, there was uh, hospitals were dependent on Western aid for uh, penicillin and x-ray plates, uh, anything. Uh, there, the, the, it was, it was desperate. And then by 2000, and this is in many ways what Putin, uh, uh, benefited from the price of raw materials and the price of Russia's oil and gas on which it depended, um, on for exports rose considerably. And all of a sudden people could get loans, they could get mortgages, they had some buying power. And you saw this proliferation of, uh, I mean, stores, goods. Um, I wish I'd been in the business of building, uh, the, you know, thermopane windows because everybody <laughs> went straight and, you know, first thing they did was put steel doors because there was so much theft on their apartments and also improve the windows so that they weren't freezing in the winter. Uh, but there was, 
you know, restaurants. There's there's one in downtown Chilliabins called Pretty Betty that is just like an American diner. The waitresses wear sort of 50s bobby socks, <laughs> sneakers, and sort of what they perceive to be, you know, sort of diner uniforms. Uh, there's the Wall Street Cafe uh, where the middle class goes to sip cappuccino. Uh, there are sushi restaurants. Uh, and, I mean, a sign of even as xenophobia and sort of anti-Western sentiment began to grow, nonetheless, quality was associated with uh, Western names. And, you know, you had everything from Chanel and Max Mara uh, to, you know, H&M moving into Chelyabinsk. There was also Western entertainment that came in in the form of television and movies, etc. Oh, absolutely. I mean, initially it was... It was uh, Mexican soap operas were really popular. The, they were the and uh, but then you know uh, Western programming and and huge amount of I mean you could get anything on the internet. I mean there it, 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 you could uh, I mean it was all pirated and friends were you know they watched uh, all the movies that uh, that we were watching uh, on, on basically pirated versions of them. What was the impact then of all of this kind of Western culture coming in, the goods, the entertainment, all the things you've been talking about? How did that affect the politics and the perception of Russia? Well, that's what the con- where you see the real contradiction. Um, I mean, for instance, I'll take a, uh, one, one young woman I, I got to know who is a I mean, very Western war, the most you know, elegant uh, Western clothes, was definitely middle class. Her husband was a successful engineer. Uh, they, She was thrilled that her son had access to uh, sort of Western toys and Western technology that she had never had. Uh, but she also loathed the West and felt that the West was preying on Russia and didn't appreciate Russia. So you have this Incredible contradiction. What did they see the value of Russia being, other than their own pride, when they looked at it next to all this Western influence? What did well, they see that, that, that they had to offer the world? Well, first of all, they are a significant nuclear power. And, uh, and they do feel that they in the, have you know, a huge amount of natural riches over the long term. But what they have also is an inferiority complex. Mm-hmm. They know that they are not making the kind of goods that are made in the West. And that is the one big failing of the Putin government, that it has constantly been talking about you know, uh, going beyond uh, being merely an exporter of raw materials, oil and gas, and, and retooling Russia's factories. And that has not happened to much of a degree. Uh, there, I mean, so it's it's really a feeling of, um, uh, I mean, culturally, historically, they've been invaded repeatedly. Uh, it's 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 a real mixed bag. That's hard for them to find something good in their past, and certainly in the recent past. And that's why this whole reinterpretation of Stalin has been so controversial amongst many people because it's sort of ignoring uh, the gulag, ignoring the, the, the repression and uh, the 
at the expense of saying he was a good leader uh, during World War II, which is also highly questionable since he mm-hmm. killed off many of the best and the brightest in the military on the eve of the, the war. How does this sense of Russian fatalism fit into this equation? Well, I mean, there was one, one young woman who looked at me, and she came here on probably the, the most successful of the State Department programs, which was to bring uh, Russian kids at university over here to sort of work at summer camps or help out in you know, resorts or whatever. And about 5,000 students um, from, from Chelyabinsk alone uh, came over here over a few years, in the course of a few years. And she said she was, she was so struck by American optimism at that juncture and that American sort of can-do attitudes, uh, and where she said Russians always expect the worst to happen. And, and she said, I don't know how we break that. There's also a sense, and I've heard it, if I heard it once, I've heard it a million times, that somehow uh, there was a depleted gene pool amongst Russia's men because so many had been killed in the revolution, and then the First World War, the Second World War, Stalin's purges, I mean, millions killed. And, and there was, they were trying, as Russians sort of looked at me, trying to explain, uh, you know, why things were so screwed up, uh, would, would sort of say, you know, maybe we've just lost our best and our brightest. To what extent is that also used as as kind of a justification or some understanding of all the corruption that has gone on? Well, it, it that is used. I mean, it, it, the corruption is blamed once again. It's sort of blamed on the West to mm. some degree as a Western import that the West was responsible for urging the rushed privatization uh, in the '90s. That it was the the Western Western advisors who were saying, you know, you needed to to move so fast, which created the oligarchs, and which then and led to a huge amount of corruption and crime and violence in the 90s. And so, you know, but then I would say, hey, wait a minute, you can't just blame the West for this. After all, you're the ones who are now corrupt and doing it. He said, yes, but you started it. We're just <laughs> fast learners. Talk about the way in which Putin understands this so well and has exploited it. Well, he's a Russian. He gets it. And, I mean, in many ways, when he came in in 2000, he understood what many um, of the reformers had not, that people were wounded, that they were exhausted, that they were poor, um, beyond those who lived beyond Moscow and beyond where things were really rough, where the factories were, you know, closing or if not closing were were keeping their workers on but simply not paying them and uh and he got that uh which and then and then not only and he, as he uh then began to sort of uh, go after his rivals using law enforcement and the tax police and whatever uh whatever means he had uh People didn't object, I mean, for the most part. And when it, when um, one thing that bothered me about um, sort of the Western reporting in sort of 2012, it was 
when you suddenly had sort of opposition demonstrations, people protesting uh, what they felt were um, vote rigging in the elections uh, and and massive demonstrations in Moscow, they were not replicated elsewhere in the country, uh, either because people were intimidated or because they supported Putin or couldn't see any alternative, were not turned on by the opposition per se. I mean, that's been a huge problem, even though, I mean, Putin's both repressed the opposition, but also the opposition's kind of devoured itself and is, is uh been not very constructive and and hasn't come up with really much of a uh, to appeal to the Russian other Russians. Although it's getting harder and harder for them because anytime anybody who might look successful puts his head above the transom, you know Putin basically lops it off in some way by charging them with crimes and putting them in jail. What about young people? What is the millennial generation of Russians doing? What, how do they see all of this? Well, everybody kept the opposition or friends of mine who, you know, don't like Putin would say, you know, they, they kept waiting for the youth to, you know, maybe if, if Yeltsin, I mean, if Putin really touched the Internet. Uh, basically, the kids are not interested in politics. They're, they're interested in being online. I mean, you know, high school kids. I mean, and even college kids, they're, they're interested in being online, having a good life. Uh, they're not going to risk anything. Uh, and, and of course, it is risky to, to, be, in, uh, to be in politics. Those who uh, can leave the country uh, and try and go to Europe or the United States. But for the most part, it's, um, there's uh, the utter apathy, political apathy from young people. Mm-hmm. Has Putin come any closer to trying to define that Russian ideal, that, that Russian national purpose that, that has been so elusive and that is at the core of, of much of what we've been talking about? Not really. I mean, he, he alternately sort of uses, you know, military strength uh, uh, and talks about that. He talks about the Orthodox Church and its roots and how important that is for Russia. Uh, but there is also a significant non-Russian Orthodox population in the country, and I'm not sure how deep. Uh, I mean, most most Christian Russians would say they're Orthodox, uh, but then you ask them what the four evangelists are, and they have the faintest idea. I mean, it's a it's a kind of mystical uh, allegiance to the church rather than one of uh, from knowledge. Uh, and I'm not sure how deep that is. I mean, it's sort of, people will say, I mean, there was a wonderful poll last year where it was, I mean, how many of you are Orthodox? The way the majority of Russians said yes. And then they said, do you believe in God? And many of them said no. <laughs> so it's, it's a, a bizarre search. There's also this, as you talk about, this very cozy relationship between the Orthodox Church and the Kremlin. Oh, absolutely. And the Orthodox Church has done, I mean, it's a, it's a corporation. It's making a huge amount of money. Uh, I mean, every, they're both using each other. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, and the church, uh, I mean, it's uh, early on, it, it got, a, although it's uh, the right to import cigarettes uh, and without having to pay tax. Uh, and 
you know, it's, it's, it's made a lot of money in this new world. Uh, and there was, I mean, a huge scandal when the uh, patriarch of the church was photographed wearing a $35,000 watch. And uh, the church then got embarrassed and tried to wipe out the watch from the photograph, which was online. Uh, the only problem was the reflection of the watch was in the table uh, where the patriarch was sitting. So it didn't quite work. But, you know, it's, but somehow or another, the church has gotten away with sleaziness and uh, corruption, too. How does all of this play out? Where does this all go from here? Oh, boy, I wish I knew. Um, I mean, many people may not really, really, really like Putin, but they, they, fear, they fear change, that, you know, if, if indeed, that it could be worse, uh, that even more rabid nationalists uh, could come in. And, I mean, one, it was, I had fascinating conversation with, with one man who was a, the father of a friend, a young student I'd come to know. And I mean, he's, he, he firmly supports Putin's vertical power. You know, top-down, Putin appoints the governors. And, and yet, on the other hand, he lives in a remote area that desperately needs development and is corrupt as all get out. The local officials are screwing local businesses forcing them to pay up uh, to provide social services um, you know, uh, in the form of bribes, and so crippling, further crippling them. And he knows that something has to change. And he talks about the rule of law, that we've got to stop the corruption, and yet he supports Putin. It, it doesn't make sense. I mean, it makes as much sense as Putin's sort of fake crackdown on the oligarchs from time to time, just for, for show. Right, but everybody right. knows the reality. But they, and then another, I asked another, <laughs> another Russian friend of mine who actually has been supporting Putin and causing a certain amount of tension between us because he, he just thinks he's just dandy. And, um, and I said, but Yura, what, why? And he said, when there's a fire, you don't ask who the fireman is. That was his answer. They're willing to excuse, find any excuse. You know, we've talked about Western influence. How does Russia look out at China at this point? Ah, now that's a really good question. Um, on the one hand, Putin has certainly um, dramatically uh, improved economic ties and w with, with China. But out in the Far East, um, Russians are a little nervous about the Chinese coming in. Uh, they've exaggerated the numbers of Chinese who have who have come across the border seeking opportunities. Uh, and there have been some really alarmist reports in the Russian media fueling sort of a kind of uh, fear of the of the Chinese hordes. But uh, so on the one hand, China needs to sell its oil and gas to China, but it doesn't want the Chinese coming across. But one of the interesting things, the, the economy is, um, while it's improved and while people's salaries improved dramatically in, in 2000, I mean, the average income is still only about a thousand, was only about a thousand dollars a month and is now less as the economy is tanked with the, 
with a drop in oil prices. And I was speaking to a Chinese entrepreneur in Chelyabinsk, and he said it was getting very hard for him. He could get peasants, uh, Chinese peasants, to come and work on a seasonal basis uh, on, the, on, in, on farms in Chelyabinsk, but he couldn't get skilled engineers or whatever to come because salaries were much better in China. Is Putin more afraid of China or the West at this point? Um, hmm. Well, I mean, you know, you people are sort of being zombified, as they put it. And literally, the word in has now been adopted into Russian is zombie <laughs> uh, by the media. And the media is talking encouragingly about uh, economic ties with China uh, and um, emphasizing the fact that the West is putting sanctions on Russia. So the 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 uh, the, the 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 masses who depend on TV for their news um, definitely are more concerned about the West. Anne Garrels, her new book is Putin Country: A Journey into the Real Russia. And I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Well, I'm delighted, and um, thank you. Thank you.